Hey, welcome back to Histories and Mysteries. I'm Jessica. And I'm still Janelle. So this week, we're covering the life and times of Lord Timothy Dexter, who was not a lord, but we'll get into that. He was a businessman, author, noted eccentric, and personal hero of mine. <laughs> noted eccentric. Ooh. And also, like, for real, this is going to be a ride. Like, keep your arms, legs, and dangly bits inside the vehicle at all times. We are going for a ride. Yeah, if we're willing to note someone as an eccentric, they are eccentric. Yeah, when I say eccentric, I don't think you're fully prepared for the heights and depths of eccentricity that are about to come your way. Like, this is not typical rich person owns a Persian cat eccentric. This is this is more in line with Jessica eccentric. Yeah, this is this is some next level shit. <laughs> <laughs> Just as a reference point, when you Google him, the first suggestion that comes up is was Timothy Dexter real? And oh yes. Yes, children. Yes he was. Nor am I an Although Timothy Dexter eventually grew to become one of the wealthiest men in Boston, he came from humble beginnings. But this is not an inspirational rags-to-riches story, because his path to the top can never be repeated. His success is not possible to replicate. <laughs> Very real. Not like the boogeyman or Santa Claus, Timothy Dexter is oh so real. No. This man was lucky to the point of supernatural. Nobody in history has failed upwards as hard as this man. <laughs> he did. He made a series of inexplicably terrible decisions, and every single one of them paid out for him. Timothy Dexter was born in 1747 in the city of Malden in modern-day Massachusetts, which at the time was a British colony called the province of Massachusetts Bay. We are pre-America here. This man succeeded the way other people lose fortunes. <laughs> If you try to duplicate what this man did, you will be penniless by next week. Timothy Dexter wasn't actually a lord. Although he used that title as an adult, he never actually had that title in any sort of official way and had no claim to any sort of nobility. He was born into poverty, not into the landed gentry. There's not a lot of information available on Timothy Dexter's early life, probably because it's boring. There's nothing really noteworthy to document. It seems that his family had immigrated to America from Ireland around 100 years prior to the uh, birth of Timothy Dexter, and they had just sort of been poor working class farm schmucks ever since. Which is also my family's story in Canada. That's most people's story in America. <laughs> it's everybody's. We all move here from a slightly shitty European country and became farm schmucks. Yeah, we we lived boring lives in Europe. We we had a brief and exciting trip across the Atlantic, and then we lived boring lives here. Timothy received very little schooling as a child and ended his formal education at the age of eight. That's enough school. It's all you need. Second grade. You're done. Slap the eraser out of your hand. Pretty, they just slap it away. <laughs> <laughs> Take your pencils and throw them out the window. You're done. They slap it right out of your Play-Doh away and chuck it into the yard. <laughs> It wasn't entirely unusual to leave school at this age uh, in the mid-18th century if you were a poor farm child. But instead of book learning, he joined the workforce and he began his career as an eight-year-old farm laborer. So romantic. 
sent home money. So rustic. <laughs> You're nine now, son. It's time to provide. <laughs> you gotta win some bread. Timothy worked as a farm laborer until he was about 14 or 15, and at that point he moved to Charleston, South Carolina to begin an apprenticeship as a leather craftsman, dressing leather for breeches and gloves. Oh, I, th I thought he was just going to be working with piss. That's just my immediate association with old-timey leather, just oh, I'm tanning it with some piss. I don't know if he did piss tanning. I'm sure it's in the notes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, it did not occur to me. To do some deep diving on the piss question. It is true that that was how <laughs> leather was processed for most of human history. There's no more readily available source of ammonia than human piss. So. Yeah, it, it took a while before we were getting artificial piss. Um, he wasn't a tanner, though. He wasn't actually a leather tanner. He was the next step. He would take leather and turn it into gloves. So... His ah, uh, so he was part of the post piss process. He's post piss. He's 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 taking the piss leather and he's turning it into piss pants. Yes, because that that was actually the origin of like not having a pot to piss in or a window to throw it out of. Is you know poor people used to sell their piss to the tanneries, and if you don't even have a pot to piss in, you can't even make that kind of income. <laughs> oh God, what a time to be alive! I mean, we're really not that far from that today. People people think that the gig economy is new. No, no, I say. People back in the day before we had, you know, Uber and Lyft and all these other, these other complicated Instacart nonsense. Before that, people were just selling their piss. <laughs> just literally the most basic biological fuck. Like, you talk about selling your body. There is nothing more. There is no form of prostitution that is as degrading as selling your piss, except waterworks. And <laughs> water play? I don't know. I remember what it was. Water sports. I was I was gonna say you can make a noble living today on on anything. <laughs> Mostly piss, though. I'm sure there's a whole category of women who are earning much more money than <laughs> I am. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not saying it's all piss. I don't want to stereotype <laughs> the noble profession. No, he he got a trade that didn't have stale human secondhand piss involved. So he was things were looking up for him. This was a pretty solid break for him, though, because being a skilled tradesman was a pretty respectable way to earn a living back then, and it paid a lot more than doing backbreaking farm labor as a ten-year-old. Moving up in the world. It was just a better life. <laughs> like, I'm not super experienced with farm equipment, but I just feel like I would like somebody with a better attention span than a fourth grader involved in that. I, <laughs> I think it's, I feel it's best for both the fourth graders and society, if they are not involved in farm labor. <laughs> yeah, I feel better if ten-year-olds are nowhere near a thresher. <laughs> not to take strong, controversial political stances, but I just feel like heavy equipment and small children should not mix. They do. Historically, they do, but they shouldn't. Well, at 15, it was off to learn the secrets of leather dressing, and Timothy eventually had to move mm. to Boston to... Rather than did turn into a smoothie by a by farm mm. equipment. Timothy eventually had to move to Boston to finish his apprenticeship, because apparently the secrets of dress leather cannot be contained to one zip code. <laughs> uh, he gotta get his apprentice piss. There's no piss involved. It's just leather. <laughs> piss, piss, piss. <laughs> I, feel, I feel like you have a less than complete understanding of 18th century industry. Apprenticeships in Timothy Dexter's time weren't the same as a tradesman apprentice now. You couldn't just dabble in it and drop out if you didn't like it. 
Apprenticeships at the time were effectively a form of indentured labor. Apprentices were bound to their masters by a legally binding contract. They had to work for their master for seven years, and in exchange, their master had to feed, clothe, and shelter them and teach them how to master the trade. Masters would actually pay for the privilege of having an apprentice. There was a fee that they would need to pay to their professional guild to seal the contract. It was a pretty solid deal for them, honestly, because most employers would happily pay a guild 20 shillings for the privilege of making you work for oatmeal and a straw bed. To this day. Oh yeah, it, it's basically just like a slave but cheaper. It's basically grad school. You can't leave. <laughs> you're in deep. <laughs> I mean, you can, but you can't. Yeah, you're already you're already deeply in debt. <laughs> While apprenticed, a person was not allowed to work for another master, leave his master's service, take on debt, or marry. So it's you're in it. You're in this life. <laughs> <laughs> you're not allowed to fuck until you've learned the ways of blacksmithing. <laughs> nah, it doesn't say that. But you can't marry. <laughs> you are not yet permitted to breed. <laughs> no, the church shall not sanction your union. It's not the church; it's the leather dressing guild. They will not have it. No tomfoolery. <laughs> we will not. Uh, there's no authority above above God in the leather dressing guild. No, nothing must distract a young boy from leather. <laughs> you live in the leather. You die in the leather. <laughs> the leather is your lover now. You are shaped by it, molded by it. <laughs> I I don't I don't know how to feel about young men whose only lover is what remains of a goat. <laughs> you need to go outside. You need less time alone with your thoughts. The age of majority at the time was 21, so there really wasn't much else to do anyway. Boys would typically enter into their apprenticeships as teenagers and they were allowed to leave once the seven years was up, the boy was over 21, and the master felt that he was ready to ply his trade. He would then be allowed to go into the trade by himself and set up his own shop. He would also be given a mark, a little symbol that he could put on goods that he'd made to mark them as authentically his. This is incidentally where the term trademark comes from, a tradesman's mark. Mm, very fun. Also a fun fact that has no bearing on this story, but I thought was interesting. You could marry into a trade. <laughs> A widow could inherit her deceased husband's mark and work his trade if they had been married at least seven years, which I think tells you how much unpaid labor women were doing for their husbands at the time. <laughs> like, it was just assumed if you were married to him for long enough that you basically know how to do his job. <laughs> uh, that kind of, It's kind of revealing of the social norms of the wife being essentially an unpaid second in her husband's business. She's a wife and an intern. That's a double role everybody wants. <laughs> uh, it's just, I, I, you, you hate, you hate the overtime, don't you? <laughs> I know that this is way more than anyone ever wanted to know about pre-20th century systems of credentialing, but I thought it was interesting that you could you could become a leather dresser by marriage. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you know, yeah. I'm uh I'm I'm I'm, I'm actually a uh, a roofer on my mother's side. <laughs> <laughs> internship at around the age of 22 and upon completion, his master gifted him a freeman suit, which was the traditional gift that a master had to give an apprentice at the end of his apprenticeship. I'm just assuming it looks like a zoot suit. I actually like can't couldn't find any images of what a freeman suit looks like. I'm sure there's 
some historical record out there as to what this actually entailed. I bet it looks like one of those little sailor boy outfits that rich parents buy their children in the Victorian era. <laughs> like, hello, mummy. <laughs> Am I now a real a real boy ready to go out into the world with my own leather goods? <laughs> Do I get a lollipop for being good and completing my apprenticeship? <laughs> my mind eventually went to, like, tailcoat, which also feels wrong. Little penguin suit. <laughs> but, uh... But the suit had two meanings. One, it showed that the apprentice was free from being bound to his master and could go where he pleased, married, and rack up as much debt as his little heart desired. Secondly, it also showed that the apprentice was now free to practice the trade on his own under his own mark. You may marry me now. I'm wearing a Freeman suit. <laughs> I'm eligible. I'm an eligible bachelor once more. Well, it didn't do any of those things for Timothy because... Prancing around town. <laughs> in your Freeman suit. Your Freeman suit. I, I want to know what it looks like. If we can... F I'm, gonna, I'm just going to assume it's like a huge onesie. <laughs> the, the free onesie. <laughs> you, don't, you didn't need it. Like, you weren't required to wear it while you practiced the trade. That would be incredibly odd. And it's a good thing that you weren't required. I must wear this outfit for the rest of my no, life. No, <laughs> because Timothy Dexter sold his immediately. Just immediately. Oh. <laughs> for $8.20. And he used this money to relocate himself to the town of Newburyport, Massachusetts. This was a boom town at the time. Newburyport was a shipbuilding town, and there was a huge demand for skilled trades and money to be made. All the dudes banging ships together need leather work gloves. So there was a huge market for Timothy's goods as soon as he arrived. Hot damn. Yeah. Within a year of arriving in Newburyport, Timothy Dexter was thriving. This was when he had his first major stroke of luck. He met and married a woman named Elizabeth Frothingham. Frothingham? I swear to God, that's her real name. Frothy ham. Frothingham. Only the frothiest of ham shall I wed. The Lady Frothingham. It feels like you shouldn't be eating eating frothy ham. It feels it feels unwise. If it's frothy, it's you should maybe throw it out. I like me a frothy ham. It's also like this is this is just the cusp of the American Revolution, and I'm surprised you can have a name that obviously English in Massachusetts at the American Revolution and not get thrown in the harbor with a tea. <laughs> right. I, how do you how did he propose? Is this like, would you make me the happiest man alive and make me Mr. Frothy Ham? <laughs> well, it, it sounds, sounds like a euphemism for a rabid pigs. <laughs> it was actually her married name. Elizabeth Frothingham was a widow. Oh. She was a wealthy widow nine years older than Timothy, and he's in his early 20s at this point, who had four children already. So this was an unusual match, even for the time. So she had, she had four, four little Frothy Hams. She did have four little Frothinghams. Uh, her maiden name, incidentally, was Lord, Whoa. which is interesting because he would later take on the title Lord. So she would have uh, been Lady Lord. <laughs> <laughs> Lady Lord. I like it. That's an excellent name. An excellent, I award many excellent. points to that name. So is Lady Frothingham. This lady had names. So Ms. Frothingham happened to be quite wealthy, and she owned a sizable estate in Boston. Um, she also happened to, like, own a leather shop. As her late husband had also owned a leather business, this lady had a type. <laughs> I only date leather good manufacturers. Thank you very much. Your black blacksmith may not apply. <laughs> so Timothy set up shop in the basement where the leather business was located, and he soon had a thriving business selling moose hide trousers, leather gloves, and blubber. 
truly a one-stop shop. <laughs> get your blubber. Get your blubber here. You need moose-eyed trousers? If you... <laughs> If you want to read something after dark in 19, 1750, not 1950, dear God, they had electricity. In 1750, if you want to read after 7.30pm, you'd better get your blubber. Just curl up with some, under a nice moose hide and read by the burning tallow of a whale. <laughs> Just a hot piece of whale. <laughs> um, Just burning merrily in the corner. <laughs> I wonder what mi- burnt whale smelt like. I bet, like, good. the entire like, the entire 1700s probably smelt of whale blubber, to be honest. Just burnt whale. I'm sure it stank of many things. I'm sure whale was actually not even, like, the prominent smell in most homes. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Ms. Frothingham also opened her own shop selling notions. Notions? I, I thought this might have been like a <laughs> shop where she whispered ideas in people's ears. Small okay. items. Especially sewing supplies. Like you'd get from a mini-sew. Between the two of them, no matter what sort of notions she was selling, they were able to save up a few thousand dollars in their money by the time the Revolutionary War ended, which was a real feat in those days. This would have been a good life. He had already come up from poverty he had a thriving business, he had ample savings, a rich, frothy wife. He, he'd kind of already arrived. He'd <laughs> Several frothy children. The frothiest children. He did have biological children with, with Elizabeth. They had, I think, two children. They were not quite as frothy. This could have been it. He could have just coasted on this <laughs> till he died. But no, because this is... He's successful, but this is the part where everything goes straight off the fucking rails. Yeah, he's already a small business owner in his 20s. By marriage, but still. So the Dexter Frothinghams lived in an affluent neighborhood in Boston, surrounded by wealthy and notable people like John Hancock, the first man to sign the Declaration of Independence. Mostly known for having a big, swirly hand signature. (laughs) The swirliest. Although you probably should know him more for the fact that he was a huge I actually didn't, I know that. I knew the signature thing. I mean, most most of the founding fathers were, in fact, huge smugglers, but like, I digress. <laughs> well, Timothy Dexter was reportedly obsessed with obtaining wealth and status and with joining the ranks of the elite. He was apparently very sensitive about the fact that he was uneducated and came from humble origins, and he wanted to rise as far as he could above his station in life. He apparently figured out that the way to do that was to make scads of money. Which, in fairness, yes. Correct. Just putting on airs, pretending you went to junior high. <laughs> <laughs> You're spot on, Timmy boy. But yeah, yeah, no, like it, in in British born societies, uh, including America in the 1700s, if you do not have hereditary status, your only path is wealth. Money. That's all you've got is money. The more of it, the better. So, Dexter's neighbors apparently intensely disliked him. They saw him as an illiterate, uncultured goon who had illegitimately infiltrated their perfectly nice community, and they wanted to see him ruined. These are the fanciest people in America. Goon is a strong term for a man who makes gloves. (laughs) (laughs) That's- that is a working-class profession. He's living in an affluent neighborhood in Boston in the American Revolution, which was 
one of the hearts of the revolution. He's surrounded by scholars and poets and politicians. He's surrounded by people who came from status and titles. And he is a third grade dropout who works with his hands for a living with vaguely piss-scented leather and stinky whale butter. <laughs> it's a perfectly respectable job. He does run a perfectly respectable yes. business. But compared to the hoity-toits he lives with, they're looking down yeah. on him. Even the Yeah, no, being useful to society used to be a mark against you. <laughs> and they didn't like even... You don't smuggle like an honest man? Well, they even the amount of social mobility he had achieved, they saw as illegitimate. He, he lived in an estate because he'd managed to marry a wealthy widow. But he, normally somebody from his background, could never have risen even that high. They resented him for even that. To the heights of frothy ham. Back to your dirt hovel, peasant. Like, how dare you marry into money as a small business? Here, here's what I find funny. It's like, I don't know how developed the New England accent was by this point, although I am under the impression that modern American people sound a lot more like British people from the 1700s than actual British people do, uh, for a variety of reasons. A uh, similar thing happened with Quebec uh, when the, and the, French, the Parisian French accent. Um, but I just like to think of all these... Fancy, snobbish people talking like they're from Boston. Mm. Even though I'm well aware that that's <laughs> a working class accent. I, yeah, I just like I just like thinking of them. Like, how dare he come into our community with his airs of third grade dropout piece of shit? Mm. We're fancy up in here. <laughs> I don't think John Hancock. Founding father of America sounded like a dock worker from 1965. <laughs> we hold these truths to be self-evident. It's slowly oh, drifting man, into Gilbert. Equal. <laughs> you are slowly drifting into a Gilbert Gottfried impression, and I'm so confused. <laughs> <laughs> You're about to cross a wire in my brain that can never be uncrossed. <laughs> I here's the thing. If I was in charge, if I had an unlimited budget and I was forced to do a historical reenactment, I would 100% cast Gilbert Gottfried as George Washington or something. I would just the most inappropriate possible position, I would just shove him right in there and I would feel no shame. <laughs> I'm I like that you know this off the top of your head. <laughs> Mike Rabiglia can be like I don't know he can be like <laughs> he can be like John Hancock or something I like it <laughs> Wanda Sykes will be Wanda Sykes will be um she'll be she'll be Ben Franklin oh my gosh I like it I like it. I have a good cast coming in <laughs> but Dexter apparently didn't pick up on the vibe in the neighborhood he apparently didn't really understand that he was disliked or seen as an outsider and he started asking his neighbors for investment advice. I'm going to invest and be fancy. So, somebody who was almost certainly messing. <laughs> yeah, don't ask for investment advice from people who hate you. It somehow isn't. That should be the moral of this story. It's not. It, sh it is absolutely the message you, sh you take away from this, but it's not somehow actually what happened. I mean, the only moral I can really get from this story is, like, somehow win God's favor and fail your way through life. <laughs> but no, you shouldn't take investment advice from people who hate you, because this should have gone terribly wrong. But someone who was almost certainly messing with Dexter told him he should go ahead and put all of his savings into continental currency to make his fortune, and so he just did it. He sunk all of his savings 
and his wife's savings, because that's oh. his money now, he's got the penis, into buying up all of the continental currency he could get his hands on. <laughs> and this should have been terrible, terrible advice. Oh yeah, like, it's new currency backed by a fragile revolutionary government. <laughs> like, it is a terrible it's, idea. It's backed by a wink and a promise. <laughs> I mean... I'm not going to get into how modern currency works. All Basically, all currency is now. These war bonds are essentially a slap on the ass and a smile. So, yeah. <laughs> so, at the start of the American Revolutionary War, the newly formed Congress of the British Colonies of America, which was called the Continental Congress, began issuing their own currency called Continental Currency. Because that's what you do when you run a new country. You create currency. You're making money. You gotta have your own money. That's just the rule. So, continental currency came in strange denominations ranging from one-sixth of a dollar to eighty dollars. That was... <laughs> yeah, no, it's a very, very strange currency. You can you can actually find... It was a bit like the imperial system. Got a base 12. There's no real base units. It it was There were several rounds of printing done and everybody... Every time they did another round of printing, they would change all the denominations. So there's basically every conceivable denomination available in this currency. You can find pictures of what it looked like. We did not discuss beforehand. <laughs> no, well, that's the whole problem. So the largest they ever printed was an $80 bill, and the smallest was a one-sixth of a dollar. And they were all printed on these squarish paper banknotes. All told, a total of $241,552,780 in continental currency was issued by Congress during the Revolutionary War. And continental currency was a terrible currency, by all estimations. You're not using it today, American listeners, and there's a reason for that. But the biggest problem was that the value of continental currency was effectively in freefall almost from the moment it was printed. Just <laughs> rapid deflation. It's it's rapid deflation. The bills were worth face value, which is the number printed on them, when they were first issued in 1775, but by 1778, they were worth somewhere between one-fifth to one-seventh of their face value. Oh, no, so it's inflation. Except not inflation? I don't even know what you would call it's, that. It's devaluation. Yeah, it's, it's devaluation. devaluation. Because inflation would imply that the government, like, that the, 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 it's just be the, like, it, it's just that the economy's growing, but no. Like, this is just rapid devaluation due to lack of confidence. There's multiple reasons that your currency can fail, and they don't all have to do with inflation. Um, it, your currency can just suck, and you can be bad at it. <laughs> it's, it's the takeaway. You can just suck at money. By the year 1780, just five years after this money began to be printed, the value had fallen to 140th of their face value. <whistles> it's not good. <laughs> There's a couple of reasons why the currency performed so badly. It just wily coyote right off. It did, right off the cliff. Pretty rapid free fall of a currency, honestly. People at the time blamed it on the fact that the currency was not backed by a tangible asset like the gold standard, but modern economists don't think that that was actually the problem. A currency that's not backed by assets is called a fiat currency, and that's what pretty much every country in the world uses today. I think there's like one holdout who still uses a backed currency. Oh my gosh. All the rest of us are trading fake numbers. <laughs> fake, fake numbers. <laughs> that are mostly, to be honest, run by confidence in markets. Yeah. Slash the promise of a government 
that has legal obligations to its bondholders. Yeah. American $5 bills worth $5. They're, you're good for that. Yeah, Everybody Because agrees. the American government says that it is. <laughs> Everyone agrees that it's worth $5 because otherwise global finance would collapse. It's, it's an agreement on the worth of it as a medium of exchange. <laughs> All of our lives are based on fake numbers printed on paper with no inherent value. Huzzah! Yeah. Woo! I'm gonna... Just to let you know, apparently... Here's the thing about, though, is, like, the gold standard was also worthless. Yeah. Gold also had only an agreed-upon value. That's that's the thing that people who still support the gold standard are lying to themselves about. Gold was also worthless. Like, it has some worth now. It's like, I was gonna say, it's an like, excellent uh, semiconductor. It does actually have a, a worth. It's an excellent semiconductor. <laughs> it, it has a worth now, but previously we just liked it because it was shiny. Shiny, it doesn't rest. <laughs> The two Yeah, it's it was shiny, <laughs> it didn't rust, and that that was all it was really good for. Nowadays, like gold has a function, but like <laughs> the worth of gold is still completely unrelated to that function. Like it's just that the bread standard would not have worked nearly so well <laughs> when you know we have a massive deflationary period because everyone let their loaves get moldy. <laughs> well, the big issue was that uh, with the continental currency was a lack of coordination. Congress and the individual states could both issue the currency, and they didn't coordinate with each other on a Ooh. money plan. They just sort of, like, issued Bad credit idea. willy-nilly without a larger grand plan for the economy, which is, I'm told, bad. <laughs> it's like the e it's like the it's like the euro but like somehow worse? <laughs> somehow worse. You can't just have, like, 13 sovereign nations all printing the same currency with no regard to what each other is doing. You need a central bank. I'm not, I don't want to be a, a like an <laughs> Alexander Hamilton simp, but he was kind of right about the centralization thing. <laughs> oh my god, this is so boring. <laughs> you need, Janelle, it is not boring. You need, kids need to learn. Listen, my that you must have coordinated fiscal and monetary policy or it's the end for you. Listen, the fact that they don't teach that in high school is a disgrace. <laughs> Every second Friday, a number is typed into my bank account on the computer, and then I exchange that number for many ice caps. That is the economy, as I understand <laughs> it. <laughs> it's not entirely wrong. I don't think it's, I've touched... The only, I, I only care about these numbers in terms of ice caps... Per paycheck. <laughs> I don't think I've handled cash in, like, well over a year. I don't, yeah. Because pandemic. So it's just fake numbers on screens for me. I've had the same $10. I've had the same $10 for over 30, 30 <laughs> weeks in a row. Because <laughs> I have nowhere to spend it. Yeah, it's... <laughs> as, as, a, uh, as a performer, I frequently get paid untraceable in untraceable cash and or Spanakopita. And so I just have, like, a lot of money that I had no use for. <laughs> no, see, I waved the magic plastic card over the magic plastic card reader, and then the number in my bank account changes and someone hands me a coffee. That's... <laughs> <laughs> That's what money is. I know my boyfriend doesn't listen to this podcast because he works in corporate finance, and if he heard me talking like this, he would have a stress aneurysm. Oh, he'd tear his hair out. <laughs> he would have a stroke. <laughs> Um, but the the issue, the other issue is that they had no real system for taking bills out of circulation. 
they couldn't or wouldn't establish a system of taxation or bond sales that would have allowed them to retire currency in a measured way, which is bad. You're just putting more and more money into the economy and it's not going anywhere. So they were basically just continuously... I can't imagine a lot of people are taking this. Well... There's a legitimate form of exchange. Governments know approximately how much money is circulating at any given time. Yeah, they made it all, usually. American paper money only has a certain lifespan before it's just garbage. There's just too much cocaine on it. Canadian money is pure plastic. It will last until the sun consumes us all. Yeah, or until you melt it in your pants. But there's still systems. There's still systems to take it out of circulation. They retire bills all the time. Yeah, they feed them to Janet Yellen. I think that's how it works. She <laughs> See, eats them. You have my understanding <laughs> of the economy. We're on we're on the same page here. <laughs> they they send them to the to the to the Fed and Janet Yellen eats them. <laughs> <laughs> that's the basis of the Canadian economy. Oh no, no, that's the American economy. I don't know who our Janet Yellen is who eats them. <laughs> Alanis Morissette? I don't know. I I think yeah, I think they feed it to Alanis. <laughs> Isn't it ironic? Just like Jan Arden sitting in a back room just eating five dollar bills. I don't... <laughs> it feels correct. They, do. they eat money. <laughs> <laughs> but the problem is when you when you have no mechanism by which you could take currency out of the circulation, you just it just keeps piling up and piling up and piling up and it gets ridiculous. There is also the issue of counterfeit. You can look up a picture of what these bills look like, but they were incredibly easily counterfeited. They were, like, handwritten. Yeah, because they don't look alike. They were just literally just written on a scrap of paper. This is before the days of holographic security features, and the British knew it. As a form of economic warfare, the British actually employed a team of artists to churn out enormous quantities of counterfeit continental banknotes, hugely exacerbating the issue of there just being too many banknotes in circulation, and causing people to lose faith in the currency. Ah, uh, inflation as a form of warfare. History, you are delightful. <laughs> we'll undermine them through, 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 through our cannons, through our morale, and through monetary policy. Fake money. Funny money. <laughs> it will take the monopoly money approach. The warfare. <laughs> Launch the funny money. Just a t-shirt cannon full of fake bills. <laughs> Benjamin Franklin noted that the depreciation of the currency had served as a sort of de facto war tax for the fledgling country. This posed a problem for the Quaker population, who are staunch anti-war pacifists. It goes against Quakers' beliefs to buy war bonds or pay war taxes, and since this currency had become, in effect, a war tax, Quaker leadership forbid Quakers from using it. Faith in the currency deteriorated even more. Yeah, you've got a not significant, not pacifism results in the barter system. <laughs> I mean, you gotta. And and there was other currencies in circulation. They were trying to get rid of British currency, but they were not having much success. Mm. But yeah, once got excommunicated for accepting a dollar. You've got a not insignificant portion of the population, a, a fairly large religious minority who now believe that even, like, touching the bills is a war crime, it's not great for the value of your currency. Faith in the currency just continually crumbled. In late 1780 and 1781, Congress made attempts to rehabilitate the currency, but it was just too little too late. And by 1781, the currency had become so worthless, it effectively just stopped being money. 
It had no purchasing power, and it was just not worth the trouble to use it. Nobody wants to rock up to the marketplace to buy a bag of flour with an entire wagon load of banknotes. That's not practical. <laughs> uh, I could get exactly as much food with this weight in plain paper. <laughs> it was. It was, like, worth nothing. The paper it was printed on. It's like the same. It's like the same problem we have with modern pennies, except with an even more worthless medium of exchange. Not even worth what it's printed on. the The difference is that we have other coins that are still worth. I mean, Canada doesn't have pennies, and we haven't for years. I can't remember the last time I saw a Canadian penny, but uh, we have other coins from the same currency. The Canadian dollar did not cease to be valuable when we phased out the penny. We were just like, "Ah, eh, this is a waste of copper." <laughs> zinc technically is it oh yeah that's right copper's way too expensive for a penny yeah it's, well because that's the copper's way too expensive it actually has a use unlike gold for most of history <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's extremely useful in plumbing and wiring yeah pennies actually destroy value because the metals in them are now worth more than one cent so every time you manufacture a penny you destroy like a cent and a half in value because the economy is fake and nothing matters well maybe i just i just don't understand it um but continental currency became so worthless that it gave rise to the expression not worth a continental which is apparently still a thing that old people say i've never heard that expression before but how old are these people can you carbon date them (laughs) i don't think they were alive during the revolutionary war i'm gonna throw that out there i mean admittedly there are like confederate soldiers grandchildren who are still alive but i'm i'm a little baffled by the by the whole affair but it was at the height of this currency's worthlessness once it had arrived at like literal toilet paper status that people convinced timothy dexter to sink his family's life savings into buying the stuff by the bale Like I said, this was not financial advice that was given in good faith. This was some upper class neighbor being a dick. This was me. Trying to financially ruin a commoner like Dexter. This was a transparent attempt to bankrupt the dude. But. But. And he just fell for it, hook, line, and zinger. This would be the running theme of Timothy Dexter's life. He had an insane stroke of good luck that changed everything. So after the U.S. Constitution was ratified by the states in 1788 through 1789, Congress decided they just wanted to be done with the continental currency once and for all. They just, they wanted to get that embarrassing chapter behind them. So by this point, the fledgling country had started getting its financial shit together. They had created the USA's first chartered financial institution, the Bank of North America, and largely backed, which was largely backed by silver bouillon and coins from France. And you people called them freedom fries. You rejected their French fries. For shame, they financed your Bouillon, country. like soup stock? France actually poured... I'm gonna assume that it's soup stock. The amount of money that France poured into America in the revolution and post-revolution years actually directly contributed to uh, Marie Antoinette being executed. <laughs> so... Yeah, like, the part of the reason why they were trying to get their taxes in order and why the uh, overburdening of the uh, the most easily taxed populace, that is the peasantry... Uh, eventually resulted in the French Revolution was because the French government did not have enough money because they were paying the 13 colonies to fuck with the British. <laughs> yeah, so all of, all of, all of, like, once they were starting to get the economy together, they were trying to have a functional currency. This was basically all financed by France. 
The U.S. was starting up its own mint and they were issuing banknotes that were backed by reserves of gold and they didn't want this embarrassing, worthless wartime currency still floating around. So in the 1790s, Congress decided that continental currency could be cashed in for treasury bonds worth 1% of the face value. So this was not a ton of money if you just had like a handful of things lying around in a drawer. But if, say, for some reason you'd sunk thousands upon thousands of dollars buying up bales of this stuff and hoarding it like pandemic toilet paper, <laughs> you stood to make a fortune. Oh my god. Practically overnight, Timothy Dexter became a very, very rich man. <laughs> Seriously, the dumbest possible stroke of luck. I can't find any exact numbers, and I suspect that Timothy Dexter was not a careful accountant, um, or that he- I mean, he barely knows what numbers is. He left school in the second grade. <laughs> he made some questionable business decisions that brought his, uh, his acuity into question, but, um, he, he did make some of his finances public. I just never found this one. He bought the stuff for next to nothing. Like, you couldn't give this stuff away. And he bought as much of it as he possibly could. Yeah, like, most of the people who sold it to him were probably confused. He, he paid way less than 1% of face value. He was buying this stuff for, like, the cost of the paper. He was... He paid, like, fractions of pennies on the dollar for this stuff. And 1%... They, they probably assumed he was going to have a newspaper or something. He's just going to recycle everything. I don't even know how he meant. I think people just wanted to be rid of it. It's taking up space. But 1% of face value was orders of magnitude more than he'd paid for it, and the windfall was enormous. And apparently, the money went to his head immediately. Immediately. <laughs> I'm a brilliant investor, don't you know? Brilliant, I say. The writer John P. Marcon, who wrote extensively about the life of Timothy Dexter, said that becoming wealthy overnight caused him to, quote, lose his moorings. And those were not, he did not have a great grip on those moorings to begin with. He wasn't particularly moored to begin with. No, but to his disappointment, the overnight windfall did not buy his way into high society the way that he had hoped. Boston High Society still hated Timothy Dexter. Him getting richer through dumb luck did nothing. To help their impression that he was just an illegitimate, illiterate fraud who'd lucked his way into the top. Oh yeah, because like this is just doubling down on their previous impression of him. Like they th they thought he was a lucky moron to begin with, and this is not going to change their minds. No, at all. They felt that he was because it's still dumb luck. And he's he's not raised high society of Boston at this time of history has very specific etiquette, very specific rules. He was raised on a farm. They felt that he was crude, low-class, and, quote, of feeble intellect. He was also apparently somewhat notorious for lacking any sort of filter. And just, if he thought it, it apparently came out of his mouth. He, <laughs> he was known to just <laughs> say stuff and face the consequences later. Uh, I know, like, eight, eight men of this exact description. <laughs> just boon companions of but mine. But have they made a fortune in rehabilitating worthless cryptocurrency. That's the closest equivalent. <laughs> uh, a not insignificant number of them have done very well for themselves in stocks for some reason. It is sort of like the historical <laughs> equivalent of putting all of your family's savings into Dogecoin and then having Dogecoin take off overnight. <laughs> it's like this 
This should not have been good financial advice. You should, it should not have been a good strategy. You should not have benefited from this strategy, and yet you did. But by this point, Timothy Dexter realized that the elites of Boston would never... They were never going to accept him, no matter how much money he made. So the newly fabulously wealthy Timothy decided to start over in Newburyport, Massachusetts, the coastal merchant town that he is best associated with to this day. At the time, Newburyport was described as a place where, quote, the rich and poor mingled, and everybody sort of knew everybody. It was supposed to be an idyllic town, but Dexter didn't intend to just move to Newburyport. He intended to arrive. <laughs> so Dexter purchased a sprawling estate from a local socialite and set about making it his own. He was the absolute pinnacle of Nouveau Riche. He had been poor his whole life. He was completely obsessed with money and status. He was deeply insecure. Oh, this man's gonna have a gold toilet. Oh yeah, this is some Donald Trump decor shit. Like, this man has the interior decorating sense of the Trump family. He is a deeply insecure but wildly rich man who has a limited idea of how rich people actually live. He just knows what they look like. <laughs> so he's just gonna do his best rich person impression, and it is going to be tacky. Gonna be out there, out there doing wealthy face. Oh, he apparently had fairly poor impulse control and was not considered particularly cultured, so the man was not known for his taste. Just gold outhouses as far as the eye kind can Kind of, see. yes. I mean, actually, no. Way crazier than that. He decked the house out with the most expensive furnishings and decorations he could find, which apparently included a set of curtains that had once belonged to the Queen of France, which is fun. Ooh. Did they have any blood spots on them? <laughs> oh, they... We will discuss the curtains. <laughs> but even the outhouses were fancy. Jessica was spot on. They were not solid gold, but one description called them, quote, Tasteful and commodious outhouses. <laughs> Most tasteful. <laughs> what a refined shitter. So notably fancy outdoor toilets. <laughs> only the most, only the highest class of porta potty for my liege. He filled his stables with matching cream-colored horses and commissioned a fancy carriage emblazoned with his initials. But somehow, this was not tacky enough for Timothy Dexter. He added minarets, which are like decorative towers typically built into the sides of mosques, oh. to his house, because one must have minarets. Uh, he put One must have minarets! He put a giant golden eagle on top of the cupola of his home, and he built a huge mausoleum for himself on the property. Oh, <laughs> I want to be fancy when I'm dead. He also hired a sculptor to create 40 life-sized wooden statues of famous men, which he then put on 15-foot-high wooden columns scattered throughout his yard. Subjects of the statues included Napoleon Bonaparte, William Pitt the Elder, and George Washington. A real who's who. <laughs> like, this is not a carefully curated selection. This is just famous people, like, quote-unquote. It's basically famous people that he had heard of, was the criteria. <laughs> One historian described the property like so. The tasteless owner, in his rage for notoriety, created rows of columns, 15 feet high at least, on which to place colossal statues carved in wood. Directly in front of the door of his house, on a Roman arch of great beauty and taste, stood General Washington in his military garb. On his left was Jefferson, on his right, Adams. 
On the columns in the garden, there were figures of Indian chiefs, military generals, philosophers, politicians, statesmen, and the goddesses of fame and liberty. <laughs> Each of these statues had an inscription <sighs> written below it, and apparently he was very fond of just going out and repainting these inscriptions himself. Yes! I mean, he's not the- <laughs> What was that again? Accuracy be damned. The statue of Thomas Jefferson notoriously had the words Constitution of Independence inscribed below it, which is right almost, but not quite. I, ooh, I, I think those are two different documents there, Tim. <laughs> I'm, I'm not American myself, but I'm pretty sure that's not quite right. Constitution of Independence. He's like, he's got the spirit. <laughs> he's like two thirds of the way there. Apparently, the original. <laughs> Well, apparently the painter had put Declaration of Independence beneath it. Uh, he was so certain. And Timothy Dexter had insisted it was Constitution of Independence. When the painter said, no, it's Declaration of Independence, Timothy fired a shot at him until he changed the words. So certain that he shot at the painter in order to ins- Yeah, he shot at the guy. Oh, I'm sure a warning Not shot. Not a solitary fuck. Uh, no, no, I'm I'm pretty sure it's Constitution of Independence, and uh, he did not give a shit. I'm willing to solve this problem with the Second Amendment. <laughs> I choose violence oh, every day. Of course, of course he has. See, the first thing I was going to ask when you said he had like over thirty statues, I'm like, are they all of him? Because <laughs> that would be self consciously eccentric. <laughs> Beside Thomas Jefferson was Dexter's favorite statue, which was the life-size statue of himself, naturally. Oh, that's some Ozymandias shit. Behold my works, ye mighty, and despair, if ye would be even fami that familiar with poetry. Well, below the statue of himself, he had inscribed the words, I am the first in the East, the first in the West, and the greatest philosopher in the Western world. So he's humble. Some Kanye West shit right there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, if, investing in what's important. Dexter was not particularly well read. He'd never read a book on the on the subject of philosophy, let alone written one. And the statues cost Dexter a total of two thousand dollars in his money, which was twice as much as he paid for the house itself. <laughs> yeah, because he's dropping the property values just by sitting there. <laughs> Up, the days of affordable real estate. Really? So the neighbors who live near Dexter's statue palooza of a house immediately hated Dexter. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, this is kind of the equivalent of that. <laughs> yeah, they apparently considered the property something of an eyesore. It's like if your neighbor moved in and put 40 plastic flamingos on the lawn, you'd have some thoughts. <laughs> Dexter himself did not help matters. He was apparently regarded as arrogant, vain, and really <laughs> unbearable to be around. His relationship with his family began to deteriorate after the move to Newburyport, especially his relationship with his wife. <laughs> Eventually, he straight up started telling people that she had died. It wasn't true. And when visitors pointed out that she was still, like, walking around the house, he would simply tell them that they were seeing her ghost. She brought you. Out of poverty by dating to marry you. And you have the audacity to say that she's dead in front of guests? She's right there! It was literally, they would show up and he'd be like, oh yeah, she's dead. Elizabeth is dead. <laughs> <laughs> 
might just haunt his ass. Yeah, guests would be like, isn't that her walking around? And he'd be like, oh, no, that's her ghost. It haunts this place. Just ignore it. <laughs> she didn't even leave the town. You know how mad you would be if your husband, you argued with her husband, and then he told the entire town that you died and were just haunting the place? I'd be furious. We're going to maintain separate residences. Eventually, his wife became so embarrassed of him and his antics that she moved out and went to live elsewhere in the neighborhood. Oh, she just moved out. She was like, no, I'm not dealing with this. <laughs> you go, girl. You set healthy personal boundaries. But once she left the house, in her absence, Dexter's oldest son turned the house into his own personal brothel. Oh. The place basically became the 18th century equivalent of Animal House, oh. with constant loud debauchery going on and strange women coming and going from the house at all hours. Don't fuck on the queen's old curtains. Don't do it. <laughs> One contemporary account said that the fine furnishings in the interior of the house, including the queen's curtains, were eventually covered in, quote, unseemly stains, offensive to sight and smell. I'm begging you. <laughs> do not, do not spill any, do not, if, if it glows under a blacklight, and I understand we haven't gotten to blacklight technology at this point in history, it should be nowhere near the antiques. And I stand by that. Don't do it. Don't put your fluids on the curtains. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna have it crossed. I'm gonna come visit you after the pandemic. There should be a big house in your apartment. Like, don't come on the antiques. Hung on the wall. Do not ejaculate on the furnishings. <laughs> uh, Dexter also bought a large fleet of merchant ships somewhere in all this, and he set out trying to grow his fortune through the international shipping and trade industry. He knew nothing about this, absolutely nothing, so he once again turned to his wealthy neighbors for advice. The neighbors hated having to live near this tacky, unseemly man with his unseemly, tacky house. And so they set out to give Dexter the worst advice they could think of, in the hopes that he would eventually manage to bankrupt himself and be forced to move. Of course. So to start, they advised him to try selling bed warmers in the tropics of the Caribbean. Naturally, he fucking did it. Bed warmers were, bed warmers were common in cold climates before the 20th century. A classic European bed warmer sort of looks like a metal frying pan with a lid, and it would be filled with hot embers and placed underneath a duvet to warm up the bed before someone slept in it. Fire hazard be damned. Oh my gosh, it is, it's amazing that we did this for, like, decades, never mind hundreds of years. Like, this just feels like something that should have killed, like, wiped out the human race before we even came up with nuclear power. I mean, they did apparently set quite a few fires, but... Uh... You know, <laughs> just the number of city-wide wide blazes that were caused by cold buttocks. I don't even want a house if I can't have a warm pillow. It's basically the equivalent of, like, wearing your clothes straight out of the dryer, but, like, way more deadly. Oh, yeah. This is, there's a reason we replaced these with hot water bottles as soon as we conceivably could. Um, Very few people have ever managed to set their apartment on fire with a hot water bottle. I mean, but, uh, I, 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 some of us aspire to higher heights than others, you know. Well, obviously, though, there was no need for this sort of device in a hot climate like the climate of the Caribbean. But Timothy Dexter, acting up on the advice of people who hated him, bought up a literal boatload of bed warmers and sent them to the Caribbean to see if he could turn a profit. And as luck would have it, the captain of his ship quickly realized he could sell the bed warmers as huge ladles to business owners in the local molasses industry. Of course. There was a shortage of iron pans and ladles at the time, and bed warmers were immensely po popular substitutes. 
So it's not even his idea that manages to make this all work out. It's the captain's idea. No, and he knew nothing about, like, the molasses trade in the Caribbean. He knew nothing about alternate uses for a bed warmer. He just sent a boatload of bed warmers to the tropics and just sort of crossed his fingers that that would work out for him. And it did. Hopefully they'll like these in Haiti. He ended up selling more than 40,000 of them in all. (laughs) It's a lot of sugar ladles. There's a lot of sugar ladles. Oh my gosh. Determined to ruin him, Dexter's rivals then suggested that he should ship a whole bunch of woolen mittens to the Caribbean, because surely there's no way you could turn a profit on wool mittens in the Caribbean. (laughs) Please, dear God, let there be no way. But as luck would have it, some Asian merchants in the in the area were looking for goods to export to Siberia, and they bought out the supply of mittens, <laughs> making another profit for Dexter. <sighs> Fucking stupid. They tried the same thing with the South Sea Islands, because there's not much need for woolen gloves in Polynesia, but the boat arrived at the same time as a Portuguese merchant ship that was going on to China, and they bought up all of the mittens to sell in northern China. Oh my god. <laughs> His rivals, who were presumably fucking furious at this point, suggested that Dexter should literally just round up some random stray cats, throw them on a boat, and ship them to the Caribbean. This had to be the stupidest thing they could think of for this poor bastard to export to the tropics. The Apparently all of Massachusetts was basically like overrun by stray cats at this point, and there was some discussion of what to do with them. I mean, that is that is how stray cats be. I think they like wiped out nearly all American ground fowl at this point. Well, you know. Who needs ground fowl? <laughs> Surely not I. <laughs> yeah, are you just tired of land based birds? Introduce house cats. House cats. They'll kill motherfucking everything. <laughs> <laughs> well, Timothy Dexter was a man who apparently had lucky horseshoes up his ass because his boat full of cats arrived in the tropics during a particularly nasty rat infestation and they happily bought up all the cats. <laughs> so this man can literally turn a profit on, on stray cats. Just a boat full of mangy cats. Into a golden opportunity. They also suggested that he try shipping Bibles to the East Indies, an area that included India and much of Southeast Asia. At the time, most of these countries were non-Christian nations and would have no interest in Bibles. But he happened to send the Bibles at a time when a lot of Christian missionaries were getting established in the area, and they happily bought up the shipment of Bibles. Because <laughs> that's the thing, is there is a weird genius in what he's doing, in that if he sends these items to that area, like, yeah, chances are nobody wants them. But if they do want them, then he's literally the only game in town. Like, there's no, there's going to be no established Bible trade to the East Indies. There's not going to be a huge amount of mittens uh, in the Caribbean for boats that, like, by necessity, are probably going to be moving back and forth between warm and hot climate, like, hot and, and cold climates. Like, even though it would make no sense to, like, do this on a continual basis, it makes a weird kind of logic just on a half-assed random chance to do it. Like, it shouldn't work, and it definitely wouldn't work if you did it repeatedly. 
Well, that's just it. Like, he had some incredible strokes of luck. Although, in fairness, the Bible thing, he did actually help along. Dexter circulated texts in the area professing that every family needed to have a Bible in the house or they would all go straight to hell. Spice the place up with colonialism. And in the end, he managed to sell $47,000 worth of Bibles in his turn of the 18th century money. Turn of the 19th century. At some point, Dexter's rivals began joking that he should, quote, sell coal to Newcastle. And for those of you who aren't familiar with the popular phrase sell coal to Newcastle or carry coal to Newcastle, it's a British idiom that literally means to do something pointless. <laughs> so, at the time, the city of Newcastle upon Tyne had a monopoly on the coal industry in Britain. They produced more coal than anywhere else in the country and shipped it all around the world. Boston itself actually depended on imported coal from Newcastle at the time. Oh, so if you were selling coal from Boston to Newcastle, you'd be selling them their coal back? Anyone who knew anything about the coal industry or business in general would have been able to recognize that this was pretty clearly a joke and that it was <laughs> a terrible idea to do in real life. This is a bit like if you're a new person on a job and they send you down to another shop to, to ask if they have any spare fallopian tubes. Like, this is this is a mean joke that is meant to be played on somebody you think is stupid or naive. It's pretty bad. But he got lucky once again. As his boat was on the Atlantic headed for Newcastle, a huge coal strike broke out in Newcastle. When a shipment of coal arrived in the city, there was a coal shortage, and it sold for a much higher price than usual. Because this man has made it. He's, <laughs> he, I don't know why he's, like, God's favorite person. If he's just supernaturally lucky, did he make a deal with some sort of forest spirit? I don't know, but this is uncanny luck. This is a Faustian bargain with a moron. Like, this is uncanny. Like, does God just have terrible taste and profits? I don't know what this man's deal was, but he was luckier than everyone else put together. If he was still alive, we wouldn't have had a pandemic. His luck would have just batted it away. Like, he probably would have, like, just been randomly selling masks to Wuhan just on the day that the pandemic broke out for no particular reason. And he would have found a way to make a killing on them. In all honesty, it's hard to say whether all of Dexter's business decisions came from him just being sort of dumb and lucky, or if there was actually a method to his madness. His contemporaries thought he was, quote, of feeble intellect and an absolute dullard who'd simply lucked his way to the top. And some of his success was undoubtedly due to luck and good timing. But it's also important to remember that unflattering descriptions of historical figures aren't always accurate, especially if they're written by someone with an axe to grind. Basically, everybody... Yeah, like, you cannot trust, like, almost 90% of what any of the ancient Romans said about each other. Like, even the stuff about Caligula and his horse, like, very tempting, very fun stories... They they just had really fucked up political gossip for the most part. Like, when you owned the newspapers, you could get people to publish anything, and they rarely had, you know, independent journalists fact-checking the shit they were spewing out. <laughs> like, fake news is not a modern problem. No, it's been around forever. It is what it isn't, but it has been around forever. We did not invent propaganda in the 20th century. It's been around for a while. For as long as we could speak, we've been lying to each other. Basically, the problem with descriptions of Timothy Dexter is that everybody who ever met the guy kind of hated him. So, we don't have a lot of flattering. With the exception of Elizabeth, and then with the not exception of Elizabeth. <laughs> yeah, kind of nobody in his life, like, didn't hate him on some level. Which makes it challenging to figure out 
how much of this description is accurate and how much is just people being mad at the guy. Timothy did seem to sort of understand that his business ran on speculation, which is the art of basically hoarding something and hoping the price goes up later. You can speculate on pretty much anything. If you buy up a bunch of vacant apartments, you're real estate speculating. If you buy up a bunch of beanie babies, you're a deceived 90s kid, but you are speculating. Yeah. It, it, it's, it's like guessing, but with a greater amount of hoarding involved. Yeah, and he, he even said in one of his personal writings, I find I was very lucky in speculation, which he has spelt with two Ks. Thank you, Timothy. Speculators swarm me like hellhounds. That, that's both, like, probably before the, uh, the standardization of English, but I'm also willing to bet nobody spelled it like that. Oh, no. People in his day complained about his spelling. It's bad. <laughs> if, if, if the 17th, like, if the 18th century is offended by how you spell, it's bad. Like, they hadn't even decided but what words went in what order yet. <laughs> but speculation even if you if you go see the constitution and the uh, declaration of independence in person they like tell you straight up where all the the constitution of independence constitution it's uh they tell you straight up before you get in to go see it where all of the errors are there are many but speculation is a legitimate but risky investment strategy it's hard to say whether timothy dexter was genuinely too dumb to understand these were not conventionally good business decisions, or if he just had an insane tolerance for risk. But, I mean, people do it all the time. You got to see it in action at the start of this pandemic when people were hand sanitizer speculating. Mm. And several of them got prosecuted for it. <laughs> people were prosecuted for it. He basically wrote out, he, at one point he actually wrote out, though, that his whole strategy for business was to ship things that weren't being shipped to places where you'd never find them. He would simply look at a region of the world, figure out what goods never got sent to them, and send some of those goods. He bought things no one else was interested in buying, he sold things no one else was trying to sell, and he sort of hoped that scarcity would pay off. And it often did. In one particular instance, Dexter went to Boston and decided to just buy up every bit of whalebone he could get his hands on. To be clear, whalebone is not the actual skeleton of a whale. Whalebone is an old-fashioned term for the flexible baleen, the mouth bristles that whales use to filter feed. Ah, oh, so it's whale teeth. That explains how they could make corsets out of it. I always wondered about that. Yeah, like, yeah, they're not using, like, whale ribs to make corsets. They're using whalebone. They're using baleen. Because I wouldn't expect whale bones to be that flexible. I mean, they're people not. bones certainly aren't. They are not. Ah. Well, now my world has been rocked. Well, whalebone was not particularly valuable when Dexter was buying it all up. Whales at that time were killed pretty much exclusively for their blubber. The blubber could be rendered into whale oil, which was the most popular lamp fuel at the time, as it was longer lasting and cleaner burning than most other fuels. Oh, if, if, <laughs> if the whale smelled the best, I don't even know how to feel. <laughs> <laughs> Like, what kind of gross-ass tallow are they using? Mm. Fuck. I demand the finest tallows. <laughs> I want only the finest of lards for my candles. <laughs> so, uh, Dexter noticed- Oh, you just have, like, a pig candle, and it's basically just like an- It would basically be like an in- Like, you wouldn't even have to try. You just- All of your candles would be bacon-scented. Not the worst fate in the world. <laughs> <laughs> 
fuming at you and like just hot boxing bacon anytime you're taking a, a, taking a moment to read. <laughs> I believe that's called living life to the fullest, Jessica. Uh, just get that salty umami flavor mm. anytime you're going down to the dockyard and people are like, ooh, who's that sexy gal? She smells like she can afford a lot of pork. <laughs> that's, that's what I like in a woman, a freezer full of pork. <laughs> <clears throat> well, just a lighter full of fat. Dexter noticed that there was a lot of whalebone lying around and that no one was really interested in buying it. So he figured, fuck it, I'll just buy it all. And he did. I don't want you to think that he bought a lot of whalebone he bought like all the whalebone he could in total he bought literally all of it he bought 340 tons of whalebone tons with a t that's a lot fuck (laughs) he then dumped his newly found supply of whalebone in some warehouses and promptly forgot all about it until the late 1700s when there was a shift in women's fashion. Oh my Looser, God. softer, laced stays and corsets that weren't boned and were made from cloth had been in fashion for the past few decades as high-waisted and loose-fitting garments were in fashion. All of a sudden, though, fashion shifted toward more structured garments with lower waists that suddenly required tight-laced and boned corsets, literally made from whalebone, that's where the name comes from, although most boned corsets in the modern era are made from metal. We had a long-term trend in being able to breathe. (laughs) Missed that. But all of a sudden, though, Timothy Dexter was sitting on basically America's entire supply of whalebone. (laughs) And the ladies simply demanded corsets. Just a huge corset. Which, that's the thing, is, like, very little remains worthless forever. And very few people think to corner the market in something that is absolutely junk. But if you wait for long enough, and you, you never have know. the money to basically get all of an asset within a particular area, like, yeah, you can corner a market pretty easily as long as you don't actually give a shit about the thing you purchased. If you're not fixing to move it, you can just wait forever. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, that was the thing. He forgot he even had it. It wasn't until there was a huge spike in demand for whalebone that Timothy Dexter even remembered (laughs) that this whalebone existed. Um, And since he pretty much owned all of it, he could basically name his price. He ended up selling off his huge stock of whalebone at an enormous markup and eventually became even more fabulously wealthy. Fucking corset baron. (sighs) I made my money! (laughs) Whalebone baron, I'll have you know. I made my money. In whale bone. <laughs> in wh- whale bone, defunct currency, and bed heating pans. The path to success is lined with I'm nonsense. A genius. Absolute nonsense. <laughs> but still, of course, no amount of wealth could buy Timothy Dexter what he truly wanted elite status, a place in high society, acceptance as a gentleman, and a ne- member of the nobility. When the upper classes and basic respect by any of his neighbors, wives, and or children. (laughs) When the upper classes refused to accept him, he simply used his money to do a bizarre job of LARPing as an upper class gentleman. If anything, he actually got more and more eccentric (laughs) as he got older and wealthier. Is this going to involve Polo Janelle? He knew, for instance, that books were the hallmark of the upper class, so he filled an immense library in his home with all manner of books. He never actually read any of them, however, 
He apparently lacked the attention span to read for more than 10 continuous minutes at a time, which really makes it hard to reach those Goodreads goals. Yeah, you really... He should just be really stocking this library full of, like, Mr. Strong, Mr. Happy, dumb bunnies. <laughs> those soft, chewable cardboard books that you the can good Thomas the Tank give to babies. Shit. He also Ugh. knew that paintings were upper class, and he ordered a random servant of his to just go out and buy paintings until his gallery was full. The classics. This is not typically how you do that, but hey. <laughs> paintings, what kind? Uh, paintings. Any. I would like ten? Ten paintings. <laughs> <laughs> just no concern for quality treating them basically as a fungible good essentially oh my god oh no <laughs> just any painting just painting question mark at one point he also realized that rich people were typically patrons of the arts and so he decided that he needed his own poet laureate oh no so dumbass millionaire is gonna get dumbass moliere oh it's it's more of a like todd and bojack horseman situation but uh since he didn't know where to find a poet, he went down to the marketplace, found a random 20-year-old boy selling fish out of a wheelbarrow, <laughs> and basically strong-armed the kid into coming home with him and becoming his new poet laureate. Oh! Oh! He just he just kidnapped a fishmonger and made him be a poet? <laughs> yeah, I hate Enough it when that happens. fish for you, boy. Come into my rich, Dex fancy house and put words <laughs> together. It's not that different from fish. Dexter had heard somewhere that notable Italian poets were given crowns made of mistletoe in recognition for their talents, and he wanted to do the same for his poet laureate, but he didn't actually have any mistletoe, so he went out into the garden, found some parsley, and figured that was close enough. <laughs> just putting parsley on your stolen fishmonger. That's gonna garnish my, my new poet. <laughs> Get some kale. <laughs> Do you think he wanted him to be a poet, or do you think he wanted him to be a salad? I, I, you know, those two are so easily <laughs> Hard to confused. Say. Hard to say. I think he wanted options. He forced this kid to constantly write and recite poems about how great Timothy Dexter was, while still wearing a wreath of parsley on his head. <laughs> Dexter began hanging out with some fairly strange company. One of his closest friends was a failed school teacher named John, the man had been turned down for a job working at a school, and so he opened his own school. Blackjack and hookers. No. Oh, that's... You know, if, if they won't be... if they, You know, sometimes you just gotta make it yourself. If the world won't open up to your brilliant <laughs> ideas, you just gotta make the opportunities. I, I personally would not join a school ran by a man who was rejected... Everywhere. To work in a school. Yeah, he actually had no education, training, or credentials to be a teacher whatsoever. He would just prattle on about his own completely uninformed scientific theories of the students. This man became Timothy's closest friend and something of a life coach. <laughs> the man who goes to scream at second graders about aliens every other week is his closest friend. Just trying to non-consensually educate the young. Timothy also began taking life advice from a local widow named Madame Hooper, who claimed to be a fortune teller with supernatural powers. She would tell Dexter's fortune and give him astrology-based advice in exchange for tea. Which, you know, not the biggest rip-off in the world. But having poems about his greatness read to him by a 20-year-old fishmonger covered in parsley wasn't enough for Dexter. He needed more, damn it. <laughs> He'd begun nutmeg. <laughs> maybe maybe a dash of spinach. <laughs> Garnish the boy. Garnish Garnish my poet. Garnish him. 
he's a poet laureate. The more lores you give him, the more leaves, the better he is. <laughs> the better. Give him my finest clump of garden parsley. Just a huge head of cabbage on the back of this kid's head. <laughs> he began visiting towns in the area and stopping random people on the street to ask if they'd heard of him, addressing himself as the greatest man in the East. It apparently didn't matter what they said in return, he would launch into a long-winded and self-aggrandizing account of his own life that people just could not escape from. <laughs> it's basically a video game NPC. You cannot escape from his annoying ass. That's basically my Saturdays. <laughs> Haven't you heard of me? It is I, Jesse P.J. Pigeon. The greatest soul on the western coast. Possibly some other coasts too, I don't know. I haven't checked. I haven't checked. This is about the time, incidentally, that Timothy Dexter begins going by the title Lord Timothy Dexter. He had no basis to use this title, and he, he's not a—he's not any—he's not a land. No, and the way. foreign, the, the United States doesn't have any. They don't. The foreign emoluments clause of the U.S. Constitution specifically states, among other things, that the U.S. does not grant or recognize titles of nobility. Dexter had no ties to any kind of European noble and no real grounds to use the title. He just started demanding that everyone in his life call him Lord Timothy Dexter, and they were so used to this bullshit, they just went with it. Yeah, they're just so fucking tired. <laughs> they're so fucking tired. <laughs> Whatever the fuck you want today, Tim. In perhaps his most famous stunt, they decided to see- he decided to see what people really thought of him by faking his own death. Oh, buddy. It was sort of a teenage, like, they'll be sorry, they'll all be sorry moment. When I'm gone, they'll miss me. But he was a middle-aged man. Except, you know, it's <laughs> he's like triple the age at which this is in any way cute. Oh yeah, none of this is cute. This got real scary for people. Um, But yeah, he decided to fake his own death as sort of a, like, they'll be sorry, they'll all be sorry moment. Um, Which is sad when you're a middle-aged man. Yeah. He converted his basement into a tomb and had a custom-made mahogany luxury coffin made it for himself weeks before the funeral. The coffin was apparently so luxurious and so comfortable he started sleeping in it at night instead of his own bed. Oh, good. <laughs> this does not have troubling implications. <laughs> his wife and children were apparently in on the joke. They knew that he was faking his own death. Um, but they were told that they would have to go along with it and act as if he had really died. And just grieve as hard as they possibly could. <laughs> Notices of- Just act really sad, you guys. Just act really sad. And, like, his wife is just like- You gotta do it, woman. I mean, he's been doing it to me for years. <laughs> act really sad. I think it's about time I get to act like you're dead, dear. <laughs> it's only fair. Yeah, so notices of Dexter's death were sent around, his fake death. And on the day of the funeral, he hid underneath some boards and watched to make sure that everybody was sufficiently sad about the fact that he had died. Around 3,000 people came to the funeral, which was apparently quite a swanky affair with an open bar. Dexter's son was so wasted that he seemed convincingly sad, and his daughter's acting passed the sniff test. But Dexter quickly noticed that Elizabeth Frothingham was smiling as she mingled with the guests, and Dexter did not care for that shit at all. He did not care for that at all. <laughs> she knows you're not actually dead, dude. <laughs> she knows you're not dead, man. Why are you so upset that your wife, who knows you're not dead, isn't actually sad? <laughs> well, he was so angry that his wife had not pretended to 
grieve for him that uh, he snuck out of his hiding place to confront his wife in the kitchen and started beating her with his cane for not being sad enough <laughs> about the fact that he was gone. <laughs> That's a great way to make people not miss you the time you really die. Didn't see a trace of irony there. Why aren't you sad, woman? Be sadder. Yeah, and the thing is, like, whack. <laughs> guests heard the commotion and they rushed into the kitchen to see what was going on only to find Timothy Dexter alive at his own funeral beating his wife. <laughs> Not a great start. I mean, that has got to be fucking surreal. And apparently after he was discovered to be alive, he just sort of casually joined the party as if nothing had happened. He gave no explanation <laughs> for the whole affair. Oh my goodness. But what Timothy Dexter really wanted wasn't death, it was immortality. And to achieve immortality, he knew he had to leave some sort of lasting legacy behind. And so, he decided to write a book. Don't we all? I mean, did he cover himself in, like, I don't know, sage or something first? No, but- I hear that helps. But he did give it a real stupid name. Oh, good. So in 1797, at the age of 50, Timothy Dexter wrote an 8,800-word quote-unquote book. That's actually way too short to be a book in any genre. Um, but he wrote a book of philosophy, and you should sprinkle air quotes throughout that as you see fit, um, titled- I'm just gonna put them between every word, air quotes. P, oh. allegedly. H, possibly. <laughs> I, if you say Who so. Say? <laughs> philosophy? Not, not feeling not it. Not feeling it. Well, his philosophy book, which I'm sure you would feel if you could find a copy- was titled, A Pickle for the Knowing Ones or Plain Truths in a Homespun Dress. A pickle for the knowing. I I want to go back to notions. I'm not... We're still hung up on that. That is, that is like, here. here's what I will say. I will commend him. That is almost English. It's so close. It's so close. Like, those words are definitely in an order that makes ten sense in terms of syntax. That's Not in terms of anything else, but definitely the syntax is spot on. Basically, <laughs> all of those words, definitely words. You'd probably find them in a dictionary a bit. So you can actually find the full text of Dexter's book online for free at the Gutenberg Project. But effectively, the book is an 8,800 word series of complaints about politics, his wife, the church, and people generally not recognizing his genius. He's having some issues. <laughs> the big questions. That have always plagued mankind. The nature of the, the of the state, the nature of the divine, the nature of, of 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 legacy, and why is my wife such a fucking bitch? <laughs> All the important questions in life. Also, the book is so poorly written that it's practically incomprehensible. Dexter was functionally illiterate and did not get any help writing this book at all. He just spelled things however he felt like it capitalized at complete random. He should have gone down to the to the market and got himself a fishmonger for a ghostwriter. As long as you have parsley, you can buy the services of a young fish poet. <laughs> <laughs> but the book was so poorly written that the entire thing, all 8,800 words, does not contain a single piece of punctuation. Oh. Just a continuous run-on oh. that runs the whole book. Oh. <laughs> So it's an 8,000 word sentence. It is basically an 8,000 word sentence. 
Oh, finally, the perfect encapsulation of the lonely man at a bar <laughs> who is looking for a conversation to happen regardless of Pretty why much. or to him. And, uh, by this point, Dexter was not ashamed of his lack of education. He was kind of coming around to the opposite. Uh, he... I'm a genius. <laughs> he resented people who had college educations as he felt that they flaunted them. And so he flaunted his own poor spelling and grammar, saying, quote, I have the money to publish books. I can do whatever I want. <laughs> Very neighborly. Uh, that's, that's kind of the heart of vanity publishing, though. Mm. I have money. I think I'm great. Fuck you. Fuck you. Go fuckest thyself. Mm. See, it's fancy now. <laughs> Very fancy. It's hard to even pick out a choice quote from this book. Because all of it is just basically one stream of consciousness rambling, unpunctuated by any sort of pause. But to give you a wee taste, one passage from his about his family reads, I married Witter Frottingham. She had four children. The whole of all their stats were short of thirteen hundred dollars. This woman growed mad. She said she must go to go furting, for I have fined against the Holy Ghost. A pardonable sin she was for making way with herself in three months. <laughs> I swear I'm not having a stroke. It's just how it's I'm written. being faithful for do the text. I was like, I hear I it. May I, sound I, I like hear it. A disim like <laughs> I may sound like a speaking spell that has been spending the last three months submerged in a toilet, but I swear to you this was written by a human man. Oh, incidentally, when I copied and pasted even that small passage into a Word document, spell check went bananas. You've got to look up what this book actually <laughs> reads like. It's something else. Oh, boy. Uh, that man would not be stopped by good sense or punctuation. <laughs> Can't have that. Dexter self-published his literary opus in 1892. Not 1892. Dexter self-published his literary opus in 1802 and handed out copies of it for free to anyone he could on the streets, which was actually a fairly common which was actually a fairly common marketing tactic in those days. The book and its author quickly developed a cult following, sort of like the literary equivalent of the room, and ended up having eight more printings of the book with a traditional publisher. <laughs> Genius. <laughs> uh you see, it, it would just be fun to read it around the it it'd be like it like be like the Eye of Argon at uh at, at at science fiction conventions where you just read it in a circle and see and you have to pass it if you crack while reading it and start laughing. <laughs> yep, pretty much. But my favorite though is that to address the complaints about the lack of punctuation, the second edition of the book included a full page of punctuation marks and other punctuation at the back of this book, with readers instructed to quote pepper and salt them as you please. <laughs> he just had a whole. So he just page. he just added periods and semicolons like a sticker sheet. Yep, just apparently just choose your own adventure. Punctuation. <laughs> choose your own adventure. You can hire editors. They don't even have to mong fish. No, apparently that was out of the question. Only the unvarnished genius of Timothy Dexter could do. The audience can decide where a period should go. <laughs> oh God. So, I usually don't like to leave those kinds of things up to popular vote, to be honest. I, I mean, like democracy is a great it. thing, but I don't think I don't think it should decide on whether or not the Oxford comma is valid. <laughs> it seems outside of like 
Joe Biden and Justin Trudeau's purview. <laughs> I just don't think, think that EU regulation is necessary in the wanton cruelty to the common comma. <laughs> That's exactly it. Maybe you don't want to follow the conventional rules of commas. You just sprinkle those bad boys wherever the fuck you feel like it. Yeah, it's 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 really it's like a spice. You really want to do it to taste when it comes to punctuation. It's a it's al it's dente individualized experience. <clears throat> what a legend! His book got tongue in cheek, kind of semi joking positive reviews in major publications for decades, even long after he died. An 1890 edition of the Atlantic Monthly said, "Quote." I'm afraid that Mr. Whitman and Mr. Emerson must yield the claim of de declaring American literary independence to Lord Timothy Dexter, who not only taught his countrymen that they do not need to go to the Herald's College for their titles of nobility, but also that they were at perfect liberty to dispel just as they liked, and to write without troubling themselves about punctuation of any kind. So it's a dig. <laughs> it's a big It's a diss. You're being dissed. Mm -hmm. This is baby basically the you know the shock jocks of the day. Well, uh, bullshit. Yeah, that's exactly what he was dealing with. Well, it it got less funny though because Timothy Dexter actually died for real, for real this time on October twenty sixth, eighteen o six, at the age of fifty nine. I actually can't find any solid cause of death, but he was in general poor health during the final years of his life, which wasn't really surprising. He'd apparently spent all of his early life traveling around the world contracting exotic diseases and drinking himself to oblivion. That is fun. So hard to see someone else living your truth. <laughs> this was a man who truly lived. Oh, he's just the man I have always wanted to be, that distant star I'll never achieve. Well, towards the end of his life, he sought to make amends with the people he felt he had wronged, starting with his wife and children. In his will, he decided to divide his immense estate equally between his wife, his children, and some of his closest friends, and apparently nobody felt left out. There were no challenges made to his estate, and his loved ones were apparently satisfied with the amount of money that they had received. That's rare. I know, quite a rare thing. The statues on the house were knocked off their pillars in a windstorm in 1815. They were then sold at auction, and although Timothy Dexter had paid $2,000 for the lot of them, they sold for just 50 cents to $5 each. <laughs> Woof. Woof. So as much as actual lawn statues. Just, just basically carting around Bed Bath & Beyond merchandise. Just wow. <laughs> Incidentally, the only- He invented tacky lawn sculpturing. Incidentally, the house is still there. And the only statue that's apparently still recognizable is William Pitt the Elder. Although oh. it's not clear to me whether it's still on the property or not. Yeah, but it's one of, the, one of the few that didn't get blown off its pedestal. It's hard to say. Um, Timothy Dexter's house still survives in Newburyport. It was converted to a hotel after his death, but the property was gutted by fire in 1988. It is currently being restored. Bedpan so. question mark? I just, I didn't want to know if there were bedpans involved. <laughs> Whale twallow, question mark, question mark, question mark, comma, exclamation mark, semicolon? <laughs> you need to go outside. You are a thirsty little asexual. <laughs> I just, I lust for punctuation. <laughs> so, Timothy Dexter's house still stands. Oh, right. 
Dexter's request to be buried in his basement tomb was denied by the city as they deemed it unsanitary and a public health concern. (laughs) No burying corpses in your basement, kids. Also, dude, you have a whole mausoleum. Just get buried in that. Apparently not. Need more. Did he not know what mausoleum was before, before he bought a mausoleum? Very clearly not. It's not a Maserati. (laughs) <laughs> you know that's weird ass conspicuous consumption he's like what do rich people do i don't know i guess they die yeah they die in high-speed collisions as one does um so instead of being buried in his literal basement um like an unsanitary commoner he was buried in the old hill burying ground in the dexter family plot and there he remains to this day and fun fact that cemetery was used as the setting of all daytime cemetery scenes in the 1993 disney film hocus pocus very fun Oh, that is fun. Just te- Timothy Dexter cameo. If somebody filmed a Disney movie on my grave, <laughs> if somebody filmed a Disney movie on my grave, I'd haunt them forever. But you just know, following whatever the iCarly of the future is. Um, <laughs> but even Dexter's obituary called him stupid. It read, and I quote, his intellectual endowments not being of the most exalted oh. stamp, which is the fanciest way I've ever heard anyone called stupid. That is that is that is a, a compliment so backhanded. Like it starts on like the exact opposite side of the body, wraps around the body twice, and <laughs> then hits you with the back of it. It has layers. It comes in waves. <laughs> That is the kind of backhanded compliment you'd expect from Stretch Armstrong. You'd think about it for, like, 14 days afterwards. Like, you'd have to call in sick from work. Like, it would haunt you. You're gonna have to, you know, pull in some specials, uh, some specialists from the local fish market and try to figure this one out. Like, beautiful (laughs) mind style. Even Dexter's Wikipedia article notes that he is known for, quote, uncommon good fortune and eccentricity. So apparently all of his careful business maneuvering about speculation kind of amounted to nothing. All modern audiences assume that he was just a fool who did whatever he said. Maybe that was true. We we're just assuming we're just assuming he's like the 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 outlier example of brownie in motion <laughs> and decision making. He just exists. This is he essentially just to be random. Like a bad counter example to children where it was like, well, you need to finish school or you know, how are you going to end up? And it's like, with a, with 40 statues in my yard. Yeah, he's just undoing yeah, you all these mother's hard work. Strange, <laughs> creepy statues. Untold riches and, and, and questionable decor. I do like, though, that he got a lovely epithet from Parsley Boy, who wrote of him, quote, Lord Dexter is a man of fame. Most celebrated is his name. More precious far than gold that's pure. Lord Dexter shine forevermore. As he should. Wow. That almost rhymes. Hashtag <laughs> Team Lord Dexter. <laughs> I mean, hey, if you are paying me in in parsley, and I presume money as well, I will make whatever mother goose bullshit you want complimenting you. I will. I, I 100% will. Uh, my price is cheap. Oh, he was... <laughs> my dignity, basically worthless. The poet was for sure paid for his stuff. It's just that he'd seen or heard somewhere 
that you were supposed to put laurels on poets, and lacking in laurels, he went with... I don't know if it's the next best thing, or maybe just, like, the closest thing in proximity. (laughs) It's green, it's leafy, it's on your head. Oh, it's mistletoe. It's mistletoe (laughs) you're supposed to put on poets. But yeah, lacking that, I've guessed (laughs) fuck it parsley. I mean, they're so close in terms of symbolism and culinary purpose, except one of them's poisonous and sharp. (laughs) Wear it. And the other one is a common addition to pasta. (laughs) Wear the pointy sharp one, it will make you write better. Poor boy. Ah, Timothy Dexter, that is fun. Wasn't that fun? That concludes our notes on Timothy Dexter. That is so warming. No one got murdered. No one went missing. The only thing that went missing is people's (laughs) sanity, for the most part. Uh, A lot of molasses got scooped into warming pans. A good time was had by all. The the moment their mother moves out in a huff. No, they'll turn your house into a brothel. Hundred percent. They're gonna get questionable stains and fluids on the queen's (laughs) drapery. Basically a human universal. See, boys acting out while their parents are away, kind of I can relate Less to. Less so. But, that is, uh, that's, that's not hashtag relatable. Having your husband tell everyone mood. that you're a ghost, that's harder to wrap my head uh, around. But we hope that you've enjoyed this episode. Not hashtag relatable. Uh, I have been Jessica. And I've been Janelle. Thank you for listening to Histories and Mysteries.